Well, we're working through this, uh, this book. Um, a quick recap for those of you who are uh, new to the book of 1 John. It's written by this older man, John. He was one of Jesus' disciples. He was very young, actually. He was the youngest of the disciples. Uh, John, when he, he spent time with Jesus. Now he's an old man, and he's writing letters to the church in Ephesus. Uh, he writes, firstly, he writes a body of writing, which we call a gospel, which tracks the, the life of Jesus, and then he writes three letters. It seems as though they get shorter and shorter each, each time. One John is the longest, uh, and that's what we're working through now. Uh, and I guess... It, in some ways, one of the ways that we can, we can listen to 1 John is we can almost consider it to be uh, an older, grandfatherly figure taking care of his children within the church. I think that's almost the, the mindset and attitude uh, that John is wanting to convey. Ash mentioned a few weeks ago, uh, the language that he uses. And he, he uses that language, my dear children. Uh, again and again, he uses that language. He wants to get alongside us. Uh, and that's what I think he wants to do now through his word, uh, is get alongside us today uh, and help us to see um, what I think is one of the things that we, we, we ignore very often and that is how dangerous our adversary of sin is. That's not really clear in the passage, but I hope we'll make it clear. One of the other things that this particular passage does, and it's only a relatively short one, verse 11 to verse 15 of chapter 3. It's a short few verses, but what it does is it also it takes us, takes us all the way back to the very beginning of the storyline of the Bible. And that's really helpful. I think it's really helpful for us today, 2,000 years after Jesus, because I think it reminds us of something, and it's this. I, I think the best way I could describe it is if you think of a suspension bridge. I don't know whether there are... Well, I, I know that there are engineers listening, and I suspect there could well be engineers in the building. So pardon my um, rudimentary engineering here, but think of a suspension bridge. A suspension bridge works on the basis of a couple of, uh, well, let's, let's call it three, great big towers that stand up into the air. And then hanging off those towers are cables that run down. Let's put another one right in the middle. And let's imagine that at the two outside ones are the beginning and end of time. That, that's the history of the world, if you like. Uh, and then right in the middle, the big tall one that sits in the middle is the moment of Jesus' presence in the world. And let's imagine the suspension cables are, are bolted to the ground beyond time, beginning and end of time. They're bolted into eternity. And then the cables run up to the beginning and end of time. And then they drop down and they meet. They find their next point in the life of Jesus. And then the actual bridge that spans that period of time, this is how suspension bridges work, everything on that bridge hangs 
off those events. Jesus right in the middle, the beginning and end of time, everything hangs off it. And the storyline, the Bible describes it as the story of our salvation, the way in which God intervenes in the world, everything hangs and depends and is suspended by those events. Central is the life of Jesus. And everything, if that doesn't exist, according to the storyline of the Bible, the bridge collapses. But actually, the way the, the storyline of the Bible is written is right in the center there is that solid moment of the presence of Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his return to heaven, his ascension. In fact, I forgot the first one, which is his incarnation. So he, he steps out of time into time. He then spends just 33 years or thereabouts in this world. But his death, his resurrection, and his return beyond time. So he, he is the moment that actually steps beyond those two boundaries of time. Jesus central in the middle is where everything hangs off and this little uh, section of the bible takes us right the way back to the very beginning of time the way the bible describes it and the, an event between two men called cain and abel most of us will know about cain and abel i think it's a it's a pretty generally known kind of story but we're going to cover it in a little bit more depth but understanding that timeline of the Bible is critical. I was really impressed. I don't know whether you know that the, the Humber Bridge, the Humber Suspension Bridge, is the 11th longest in the world. That's pretty good going, isn't it, for the Humber? At 1.4 kilometers, nearly 1.5 kilometers. The longest is just over two kilometers, I think. So, so it's doing pretty well. But have that in your mind and imagine you would not be able to cross the Humber if it wasn't for the suspension. You would not be able to journey through the storyline of the Bible until you understand, until you engage, that it has a continuous flow that carries you through. That here we are, we're, we're heading towards the end of time, but we are looking back to that moment of the birth of, and uh, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, which carries through in this, this journey of salvation. And John's wanting to impress this on his listeners, and he's wanting them to understand. Uh, and so he wants to really push into their thinking. I want you to really think about what it means what it really means to have faith in Jesus. And this is a theme, actually, that keeps coming back uh, it, throughout the book of John, 1 John. I, I suppose, I, I would speculate, that the reason that he keeps coming back to it, the idea of loving your brother and sister, is because he's writing into a situation where that is a challenge. And so here we have in verse 11, for this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another. Now, undoubtedly what John is talking about there when he says from the beginning, we should love one another, 
He's, he's talking to the, 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 the Christian believers in Ephesus, and he's saying, from when you first heard this, you know that loving one another is a critical factor in being a believer in Jesus. It's, it's essential to being a believer in Jesus revolves around this idea of loving one another. But, but I actually think, I wonder whether there's also another level in which John uses that from the beginning, because he then takes us to the beginning, <laughs> which is the beginning of time, where he talks, he takes us all the way back to Cain and Abel. But I think what he does is he, he asks us to think about, therefore, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? I'm going to throw in a verse which is so well known, but it, it plays into our thinking. In his previous letter, he makes it really straightforward about the centrality of Jesus. And he says in John chapter 3 and verse 16, it's probably one of the most well-known verses. If the Bible is new to you, I would encourage you to think, dig out this verse, have a look at it, see what it says, understand what it says. He says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's what John says. He says, believing in Jesus means that you have eternal life. That, that's fundamental to what it is to be a Christian. Now, as we enter into the next few verses, we, he throws in another, I would describe it as a litmus test of what it means to actually be a believer in Jesus. Do you, you know what a litmus test is? I had to brush up on my chemistry here just to make sure I knew the right numbers and the right colors. But you take a piece of litmus paper, dip it, dip it into a solution, and if it goes more red, it's acidic. If it goes more blue, it's an alkaline. And right in the middle, uh, number seven, is neutral. But I was thinking about that. I was thinking, actually, that, that, that's cutting it. And you've got all sorts of different colors. And if you remember it from your chemistry books, you might have colored it in in different pencils to, to give this nice spectrum. But I think there's something really interesting about a litmus test, if you think about it. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to get bashed over the head by chemists at the end of this, but I would imagine there's, there isn't such a thing as true neutrality. You either tip into one or the other. When you get down into the kind of deeper and deeper levels of measurement, you either are acidic or you are an alkaline. It, it, you, you sit one on the side of the other. Do you know, I think that that actually points us to our first observation about how we think about sin. I think we tend to think about sin as being really bad things. But actually, sin and righteousness are an absolute. You are either sinful and you are Therefore, alternatively, either righteous. And that's really critical for us to understand that. Because we tend to want to make it nice and relative and, 
uh, and real sin is everything that's worse than me, <laughs> I think, is, is our, our, our mindset. So let's see how John starts to push into this litmus test. I'm going to jump, jump through our reading to, to verse 14. Because if you think about that idea of the litmus test, and we come to verse 14, we read this. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. There's our litmus test, if you like. He's saying if we believe in Jesus, if we claim, according to John 3 verse 16, what do we need to have faith in Jesus is to believe in him. And now John, building on what he's already say, it said, he says, and I want to point to another way in which you can understand whether you truly believe in him, which is that you love one another, that you love your brother or your sister. Anyone who does not love remains in death. He's writing to a church and he's saying here, you know that you've passed from death to life. What's that all about? Well, let's go on a few verses from John chapter, uh, a few verses earlier from John chapter 3 and verse 16. John's speaking to a man called Nicodemus, and he says some of the most well-known words in the, in the Bible, which is this. Truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So you see how John's connecting this to verse 14, He's saying you've passed from death to life by being born again, which is believing in Jesus. And you can know that you believe in Jesus if you love each other. I find that absolutely remarkable that, that this idea of love, loving each other, is the litmus test of believing in Jesus. And I think that it's amazing because it's actually the thing that we should find most easy to do. See that? There are all sorts of other things that we, we see are problematic and unrighteous and rebelling against God, but actually loving your brother and your sister is the thing that should be the easiest thing to do. And what does that do for us as we hear it? I think it just prods us a little bit and it says, yeah, I, I'm pushing the finger on the point that reminds you that you are not righteous. Because that is something that you struggle with, isn't it? That's what John is saying to us. Right? He's saying it to me that, that there is a sense in which the easiest thing is often the hardest thing for us to do. And how, how much how much significance does he place on this? Well, look at how he builds on it in verse 15. He says, anyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. It's like, come on, John. Let, let, let's, let's just calm it down here. You know, I, I, might, I might hate them, but that's not the same as murdering them, is it? And yet he's really, he's really out with this. And he's, he's really hyperbolic. He, he, he makes it so extreme as if he wants to 
wave it in our face and say, do you see the significance? Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in them. So here's the thing. Let's go back to our litmus test. Let's say from seven all the way through to alkaline is righteous. And let's say from seven all the way down to deep red is acid, okay? And I put, I put murder right down there, deep red, don't you? But actually what John says is hate is, is, is in the same camp as murder. That's really powerful, isn't it? How does he get to that? I think the reason that he gets to that, and we've got to jump earlier to a few verses earlier, is because we see the foundation that he makes this claim on. And the foundation that he makes this claim on is throwing this line, this suspension bridge connection, all the way back to Cain and Abel. Look at what it says. Do not be like Cain, who belongs, belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteous. That's why John is saying, do you see the connection here? His two brothers Two brothers, Cain and Abel, they've been, they've been emblems throughout time <laughs> as, as what ought to be, but isn't. Two brothers who should love each other, but hate each other. Jeffrey Archer, I think, wrote, wrote a book entitled Cain and Abel. Bruce Springsteen, Thought a little bit about it. For those of you who are old enough, Bruce Springsteen thought a little bit about it when he wrote the song, Adam Raised a Cain. He said there is a, there is a way in which the imperfections of Adam influenced Cain in his ability to live like that. And, and I think it's absolutely insightfully brilliant. And talking about the reality that the human nature that is fallen away from God passes through generations the ability for us not to be who we are and the ability for us to be unrighteous. And here we have this story of, of Cain. So, so I thought it would be helpful for us to go back and to look at this story. So... Uh, and, and the reason is, if, if we've understood that love is the litmus test, I think the next step in the journey of understanding this is to think about the heart of Cain. Because that's where the issue exists. Genesis chapter 4, verse 2 through to 8. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. So here's two brothers, one looks after livestock, one looks after the uh, growing pro produce. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. 
I'm going to stop there. And even though it's all up there, no, it's not up, all up there. We'll jump to the next bit of the reading, actually. Don't get, let's pretend that we didn't see those ne that next verse because we're going to come back to that because it's critical. Uh, let's look now uh, at verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him, murdered him. Let, let's just think about those two ends of the story. They both bring offerings to God. And one is accepted and one isn't accepted. And as a result of Abel's offering being accepted, Cain's anger towards his brother burns within him to the point where he kills his brother. That is horrific, isn't it? Now, I think one thing that we really need to recognize there is for that to be the response, the favor of God towards Cain was something that he desperately must have wanted, mustn't it? God accepted you and he didn't accept me. I hate you. I'll kill you. Because actually what I desperately want is God's favor. If God's favor did not mean that much, he wouldn't have killed his brother. He would have shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, fair enough. I'll not bother next time. But, but I think Cain points to something there for us in, in our generation today. There is a sense in which we desperately seek the favor of something outside of us. And we tend to seek the favor of something outside of us with maybe it's online, maybe it's in our peer group, maybe it's in the workplace, maybe it's in the family. But all of those are just substitutes for the greater favor that we seek, acceptance that we seek for something outside of us. And Cain knew God. He wanted that favor, but his offering was not accepted. And you look at it, and on face value, you think, that, that, why? That just seems so unfair. God accepts one, and God accepts the other. Uh, doesn't accept the other. Isn't it God, actually, that's to blame for this? Isn't it God that's responsible? That's why I paused and missed those verses. Let's go back, shall we? And look at verse 5. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. You could almost describe it as Cain was in the most profound sulk. He was in an angry sulk. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? 
verse 7 is absolutely critical. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? I think what God is pointing his finger at there is the very issue of the human heart. We want the acceptance of God, but our hearts do not yearn for him. If you do what is right, if you, in other words, if your heart is in the right place, if you know that your heart is right before me, your, ex, your offering would be accepted. There are some scholars who think that, that the reason that uh, Cain's offering was not accepted was because it wasn't a, a blood sacrifice. Maybe, but, but I think for me, the fact that there are grain offerings later on in the Bible makes that a bit difficult. I think what God is saying here is, Cain, I can see your heart. You haven't brought this offering to me with thanks and appreciation and love and value. You've said, how much is it going to cost to buy the favor of God? And that is our religious journey. What do I have to do? What can I do on the face of it outside there that looks like I'm acceptable to God? I, I bring offerings that, that make it look okay. I bring things that look okay, but, but the problem with the offering that Cain brought was not the offering, it was that God saw the heart and he knew the state of the heart that Cain came to God in. And he said, if your heart is right, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But you won't. Because actually, Cain, all you ever wanted to do was buy me. <laughs> and if you trace that idea right along the suspension bridge of the salvation story of the Bible, you will see it repeating itself again and again and again. And folks, that is something that we struggle with today. We make religion the by God statement. And our hearts are never really there. But the test is that when our desire is to truly love our brothers and our sisters, there is a way in which we can see whether the heart is truly moved. And that is the core of the message of the gospel. It is not what you do, it's where your heart is. We can all do the religious things. But where is our heart? Then God speaks to Cain and he says this, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door it desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You see that? That is amazing, isn't it? And here's, here's the foundational idea that comes through in that. And it's this. Cain, your heart is wrong. Sin is ready to crouch. It's crouching at the door. The picture is really 
dramatic. It's almost like an, a, a, an assailant crouched behind the door, ready to attack the person who walks through it unsuspecting. And God is saying to Cain, He's giving him the heads up to say, you're in danger now because you're walking through the door and you, you are prime for sin to get you. And Cain walks through. And he doesn't just allow sin to attack him. It seems as though he embraces it wholeheartedly. Because he ignores the warning of God. And he kills his brother. And so John is saying, do you see the significance of love? It's the way in which we can see the true motive of the heart. That, that's what he's getting at. That's why he's saying it's that the lack of love, the hate for a brother or sister, is the equivalent to murder because he's taking it all the way back to the very beginning and he's relating to this story where he's able to say, look, that is what happens when hate is in our hearts. But I think there's another thing here. Sin is crouching at the door. And you must rule over it. From that moment, I think the whole of the, New, the Old Testament is this constant story of sin crouching at the door and grabbing the one who is not watching. But grabbing those who are watching as well. And God warns and He says, you've got to stand against this. And that is true. But at the same time, we look at it and we say, I can't stand against it. I have a desire to love and an inclination to hate. That's what Paul says in Romans. He says, my heart wants to do one thing, but I, am, I find my old character, my old being, pulling me in another direction. I find that I want to do one thing. Do you, do you feel like that? Do you feel that when you hear this, it, it feels like this, this, I've got to fight against sin. You, we have to fight against sin. But you know, it's way more powerful than we can ever imagine. And it's way more powerful than we can ever subdue. And so we come back to our suspension bridge because right in the middle is Jesus. And the great news is this, and this is what John is imploring his listeners to understand is, hold on to the desire to love. Because the righteousness that you need to achieve that is not in you. It's in Him. It's in the strength of Jesus. You feel overwhelmed by that responsibility to fight against this crouching tiger of sin. The great news is that Jesus has defeated that. Be discouraged if you have no desire to love brothers and sisters. Be very, very encouraged if you find yourself with a desire to do that tentative, broken, 
failing as it is, if you have a heart which is to do that in a way which is different than you have ever would, would have done before by nature, then the power of the Holy Spirit is working in our hearts so that we might be more like Jesus. But the achievement and the success is on the suspension bridge, central pillar of the one who did achieve it. And that's Jesus.